Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reismandel. Hello, everybody. Eric Klein here. Hi, I'm Jennifer Waits. Today, we thought we'd take a look a little bit at some news stories that we've covered in the recent past and provide some updates, actually. It's good to kind of do some follow-up on things that we talked about, especially towards the end of 2020. As well, uh, we'd like to talk a little bit about maybe what we're excited about coming forward here in 2021 in the world of audio and radio and, and podcasting. But, but the first thing is something we talked about a lot with our friend Professor Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota. And it's, it goes by the name Section 230. And I think many people now have heard about it on, on the news, right, and seen it discussed in, in social media. But in short, uh, this is a section in federal law, uh, a part of actually what is called the Communications Decency Act. I want to jump in before you even try to do the hard work of explaining it and say it's a part of a policy that was set by Congress back when the Internet was uh, was equivalent to, to newspapers. It comes long before the age of social media or uploading videos or any of the things that we think of as the Internet. Uh, Section 230 was written by Congress in the 90s. And in it, 1997, and it, yes. And it comes and it comes back now um, right to the top of 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 mind because um, of all people, uh, President Donald Trump made it a giant issue. He tried to use it as a cudgel against big tech. Right. And and, and it's important to understand what it does, right, uh, in order to understand it, why yeah, he uses it as so a It's so much more boring than Trump was – like the. this is why it's so fun to talk about because it's – it's not the, it's not what Trump thought it was. Right, right. It, basically, it, but it, it is it is something which uh, allows um, so many different types of of web uh, entities, internet entities, to to exist and to have business. And basically, what it does is it exempts a, a web platform, an internet platform, from having liability for the things which users say on it. So, essentially, if I libel somebody or slander somebody on Twitter, on Facebook, or on, like, the, the comments board for my local community radio station, I am the person who can be held liable for that libel or slander, who, who would be sued. The community radio station, Facebook, Twitter, they are not liable. And that's, that, that's the long and the short of it, right? I, I have another way, another way to think about Section 230 that I learned this week. It relates to how community radio works. Um, community radio, when a host, be they volunteer or paid host, gains the access to the airwaves and speaks into the microphone – they they've um, achieved a sort of a level of um, authority. Ha- they've had to pass through a certain number of gatekeepers to gain that authority. And one of the reasons why radio has always been run that way is because the words that you speak into the microphone that get broadcast on the radio um, are uh, they, they can get the radio station in trouble. Yeah, the radio station right? is bears the liability for what goes out over its airwaves. That's correct. the radio station bears the liability for what goes out over its airwaves. Twitter does not. Right. There's you don't need gatekeepers on Twitter because uh, it's not Twitter's problem; it's your problem. And and radio is different. And that's that's one of the weird things about Section Two Thirty that I think is relevant right now. And it's fundamental to the development of of social media, but also fundamental to the development of what we you know used to call kind of user contributed content, right? So that any sort of open forum 
And so it doesn't have to be a Twitter or Facebook. It can be a message board, a bulletin board system, right? It can be a comment section um, on, on any given website. Um, if some, you know, because it, it is in recognition of the fact that if there were to have to be strong controls up front, right, strong editorial controls, we just couldn't capture the dynamism of the internet. And it would also be be a strong liability for even a company to create, you know, something like a blogger, right? A blog platform where even if it's not kind of a, a free for all or quite the kind of um, dialogue that of sorts that you have on a Facebook or um, or on uh, Twitter, someone would wouldn't even be able to very easily create. Hey, here's my web my, my my blog on Blogger that's hosted by somebody else. It would mean that everyone who wanted to speak on the internet would have to go about through the process of creating their own websites with fairly strict terms of services. Yeah. Uh, and contracts to, yeah. that they would have to sign in order to speak online, right? right. Or or everyone would have to connect their computer to the not internet. Quite, and not that's quite, where not the quite that. Not quite that stringently. No, what you would do is you would set up something like a Squarespace. Only the terms of service right. would be would be yep. uh, stricter, uh, more onerous, and you'd have to sign all sorts of things saying that you basically take full responsibility and absolve uh, Squarespace from any liability. Um, but you know, so and- Donald Trump made say- okay. Sorry, I th- I thought we should grab back the no, yeah, the, yeah, yeah the exactly. Moment. So so yeah, so Donald Trump has made a big point uh, of saying that he wants to uh, to get rid of this uh, particular uh, law, this Section two thirty, yeah, section uh, in 230. part because and he he objects to the the tech platforms uh, uh, stepping in to actually uh, control or or provide some editorial control over yeah. the speech that they're permitting. And as we covered in a recent episode of Radio Survivor with Dr. Christopher Terry, our resident expert on media law, um, one of Trump's final acts as president prior to the riots that sort of reframed the conclusion of his administration was to remake the Federal Communications Commission to appoint a new uh, a new Republican uh, member to the body who was in favor of his – uh, his policy goals with Section 230, and we also knew that at the time, the Republican head of the FCC, who'd been the Republican head of the FCC for the entire Trump administration, Ajit Pai, uh, was game. He yeah. was ready to take on Section 230. And so, basically, uh, what today, happened is, the- is, yeah, there was a there was a memo written uh, that came out of the NTIA, which is another administration of of the federal government, that said that they believed that FCC could take over administration of basically the internet <laughs> it could take over sort of the same uh, type of controls it has with regard to say indecency on, on broadcast on radio and television and apply that though sort of broadly to the internet. Um, and, and the author powers, of this memo, really. the ostensible author of this memo, Nathan Symington was then appointed to the FCC and done sort of last minute. And it was because the uh, the term of former commissioner uh, Michael Riley was coming up. And then, you know, under typical circumstances, often that reappointment might be deferred to right. the next incoming administration. Well, but instead, uh, both Trump and and the Senate uh, rushed in this this nomination right. well, and was, confirmation of Nathan Symington, who, and there was who some, some ostensibly Trump- was believed to be there specifically 
to push through the FCC uh, declaring that it has control over speech on the internet. Right, and the and the much and the Trump drama, the very Trump drama, was that uh, um, uh, the the former Republican commissioner who who lost their job, um, they Trump, you know, it was like a um, it was a last minute switch. Like he had the job, and then Trump. Yeah, he was he was in line to be renominated and reconfirmed. Everything was going according to plan. And, and then, but Mike O'Reilly uh, stated publicly that he felt right. this was a bad idea, and for for the FCC to regulate the content of the internet. Mike O'Reilly is a very strong conservative, but one might argue a, a principled conservative who 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 believes in less government regulation for better or worse, uh, in many cases, uh, rather than more. And he saw this as 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 a potential to be regulatory overreach. And, uh, so he and, lost and, and his ex- job and expressed that, or, and then his not renomination was uh, almost immediately canned. So, and, and so what, the, what we thought would happen was that um, is that you know coming into this right. January, there was an FCC meeting this week, uh, which is uh, you know the week of uh, January 11th, and you know with uh, Aji Pai in charge and uh, a Republican majority with the uh, third Republican also signaling his support for uh, the FCC declaring its dominion over Internet speech, um, there, w- there was more than a, a, a decent chance that we thought um, the FCC would move to pass this, to say, basically, we intend to take over administration of Section 230, and we believe that we can begin to regulate uh, how... Um, basically how any online platform uh, edits, you know, speech uh, for all intents and purposes. And, you know, we were all sort of waiting with bated breath for this to happen. But then, of course, January 6th happened. (laughs) Yeah, so the Capitol riots really did seem to throw a monkey wrench into this particular, you know, all what we know is that Aji Pai announced that the the FCC would not be taking it off. off. And then yeah, they that, had the meeting this and week and they did not take it up. And why this is important, right, is, is that we will see a new FCC soon. The party in power, the executive, so uh, it will be the Biden administration, has the opportunity to choose its chairperson and, uh, and appoint the majority yeah. of, I think we should, of the commission. And, sadly, we should mention right now on Radio Survivor that we are recording on – uh, January fifteenth, and by the time that this uh, airs, uh, the that's when the um, that's when the Biden administration is scheduled to be uh, sworn right. in. So and 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 so therefore, what what some feared would happen is that uh, you know this would be like a last minute kind of monkey wrench. And if then uh, the a Republican led Senate, of course, we now know there will not be a Republican led Senate. But if a Republican led Senate uh, chose not to uh, or to delay confirmation of a new chairperson or delay confirmation of a new Democratic majority on the FCC, uh, the FCC having dominion over the Internet could have been the law for a while. <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, and I, throwing into question. And I, not just the business models of a Twitter or a Facebook, but really, frankly, causing consternation for anyone on the internet running a site that allows users to comment or and, and to comment freely. And and it's important always to understand that, that Section 230 does not strip any website 
from having the power to edit what appears. All it does is it says that if folks contribute things that are uh, perhaps uh, legally actionable, the person who posted bears the liability for it, not the platform. And I just I if <laughs> I just want to remind everybody, including myself, that Section 230 was written by Congress in the late 90s. It gives the FCC the power. You know, it gives the FCC a certain amount of. Uh, no, it doesn't. Uh, it, it takes no, it doesn't. away. Right. It takes away a certain amount of. It doesn't. Well, power. It, no, it doesn't. Doesn't. It has no bearing right. on the FCC. <laughs> the, Section right, right, 230 right. does not involve the FCC. But the FCC was going to take up the issue. Correct. And it was an interpretation of it that the FCC could have right. dominion. And the point I was trying to make before I tongue-tied myself was that uh, a new Congress is uh, has is taking power. The new administration is moving forward. And a gigantic um, national historical event has taken place that puts to the top of mind – um, the power of the internet, regulating free speech on the internet, um, what platforms can and cannot do with their uh, with their users, including the president of the United States. Um, the whole frame of the conversation is uh, if the, if Congress ever takes the step of creating new legislation uh, to take on this policy issue, um, I am I'm 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 fairly confident that that would be. Uh, the beginning of the framework and the debate is this uh, looking at this event. And, well, and how, I mean, I think how, ultimately, how the internet uh, works. I think the real the real point here is it seemed as though uh, outgoing chairman Ajit Pai decided not to hook his wagon to that. Um, you know, I think he's looking to land in a cushy industry job on his way out the door and uh, see being seen to have thrown a monkey wrench into the uh, into a fundamental aspect of the operation of the internet on his way out uh, probably clouds his prospects you know That's if, funny. Yeah. if if he if you know it, it were and I, I I will suppose and I will only you know say that's my opinion that he had his finger in the wind and if he thought the winds would blown differently or were going to blow differently he might not have uh, he might have gone differently uh, but I also I will note it was not on the agenda for January and it's rare for the FCC to have a meeting in a January right before an yeah, inauguration and usually the transfer of executive power happens first with that new FCC so this is sort of overall a rare set of circumstances which is why it had people's radars up, had their ears up, uh, paying attention to see to see what might go down. But it definitely seems that certainly, I think what the, the events of, of January sixth, the insurrection on the Capitol, um, had an influence. I suspect Ajit Pai was probably already leaning against it, uh, reading the tea leaves and, and and realizing that he he he's he's done better or shall i say he survived better <laughs> as a head of a department uh, of a bureau or commission under the trump administration than almost anyone else right well as <laughs> and we he said better at the quit beginning while he's of, ahead <laughs> at the beginning of, as we said at the beginning of the trump administration four years ago on this podcast ajit pai was uh going to be the republican nominee to head the fcc if 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 jeb bush was president he sort of was the next in line um, and so the, it was just um, uh, we, we wondered at the time if his behavior was changing uh, to be more in line with Donald Trump. But his politics, his his policy outlook was always the 
you know, more of the mainstream Republican point of view. Uh, main, uh, Paul, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if before we move on to other topics today on Radio Survivor, you could let us know, let the listeners know what else is happening in the year 2021 uh, at the FCC that we're going to be covering um, in episodes ahead. I mean, net net neutrality is not going anywhere. Well, I mean, it's hard for us to know at this moment, right? Um, you know, I would suspect that uh, net neutrality, basically reinstating net neutrality, reinstating open internet orders, might be towards the top of a list of a potential uh, Biden nominee. A um, number of names have been floated, but we do not know who that nominee will be to, to chair uh, the FCC. But I, I think it's it's arguable that will be towards the top. I think as well, um, uh, probably broadband. Uh, specifically with regard to uh, to broadband accessibility uh, being right. probably towards the top of there too. I, I think we can expect that um, equitable access to information, equitable access to, uh, to you know basically uh, digital equity to be to be fairly high on the list of whomever uh, is nominated and therefore on the table at the FCC. What's still in the background, and, and I certainly can't say more about. It, I hope Christopher Terry will be on when we see more action. Is certainly all of the FCC's. Um, Ownership regulations are now in front of the Supreme Court after uh, more than more than a decade, <laughs> closing in on twenty years of of recalcitrance and inaction across both Democratic and Republican administrations. Uh, and so, it will be interesting to see uh, if if the FCC one continues to try to defend uh, its record of inaction or uh if it if it decides to step away from the supreme court but that those are things that still are in the offing i think for 2021 yeah and if i might also oh oh, and i'd also be curious about at at the end of 2020 we saw a crackdown in pirate radio activity and so i'm curious how that's going to shape out with a new administration as well yeah we wanted to and and it's interesting because michael riley was probably the chief anti-pirate commissioner he was the one who who really uh, had the greatest interest in a crackdown on, right. on pirate and again, radio. That's, that's the FCC commissioner who um, who left. surprised who, was who Trump re-nominated. surprised us by not renominating in a big switcheroo that was almost like getting fired, but not quite. Like yeah, that. we'll definitely have to have Christopher Terry. We, we've actually promised Chris uh, to have him back to talk about this very specific topic. So I, we, we will definitely uh, get to it um, in, in the coming uh, weeks here in, in 2021. This is Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reismandel. You just heard from Eric Klein and Jennifer Waits. And we're trying to wrap up some of the uh, stories that we were covering towards the end of 2020 where we've seen some action. Um, we want to be sure to, to give everyone a sense of closure or know what they should be worrying about and maybe what they don't need to be worrying about right now. And uh, Jennifer and Eric, uh, you know, you you did an a- interview that got into the history of a, of an often little considered uh, broadcast service in the United States, which is in fact really the only truly government owned broadcast service uh, in the United States, whereas like the BBC, the British Broadcasting Company, is actually owned and operated by the British government. National Public Radio in the United States is a truly independent entity, although it receives public funding. There is actually another broadcast entry entity that is actually fully owned and operated by the United yeah. States. And, yeah. and wouldn't you know, you, you can't hear it on the radio in, 
in the continental United States. Well, you can, actually. You just need a shortwave radio. (laughs) Yeah, you need a shortwave radio and a very tall antenna. Right. But now, because of the internet, it is available. Yes, you can take in content online. Yeah, we're, we're talking about the United States Agency for Global Media, which used to have a different name, actually, until relatively recently. But it it oversees Voice of America, uh, Radio Liberty, Radio Free Europe, a number of different broadcasters that broadcast outside of the U.S. And we did an episode in fall 2020 about the history of this agency. But it was also – we've also have seen a lot of changes at this agency since June 2020. And and so we, we talked a bit about that, and it's sort of in line with other things we've been discussing as far as the FCC and this administration, where uh, we had a new head appointed to this U.S. Agency for Global Media, as well as some other appointments that were more conservative-leaning, more pro uh, the administration that had been in office the past yeah. four years. Well, and that has led to – Complaints, controversies, lawsuits, including um, some issues just recently where there – so the agency, um, Voice of America, has prided itself on having independent journalists who who tell the news of the United States overseas in a uh, – in a in a way that um, it demonstrates it demonstrates uh, an American style objective media that was in a post uh, World War II Europe was being broadcast to some communist countries as well, demonstrating um, the you know the 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 noble goals of the American free press. And I'm saying all of this. I yes. realize that it sounds like I'm uh, in the bag. Uh, and I'm and I'm and I'm speaking propaganda on behalf of the American Empire, but that's also I mean that those were the goals of the of right. Voice of America. Yeah, the idea yeah. is showing that, that that on the Voice of America modeling you, democracy. Yeah, you might hear news reports that were critical of the president of Congress, you know, or as critical as they would be in 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 something like the New York Times or the Washington Post, uh, exactly. which you would not have heard um, on you know uh, in Pravda, right? In, and so, in, in, and, in the yeah, Russian so this or is Soviet very, press at the time, very radical sounding and inspirational for folks. You know, think about during the Cold War, or if you're in a very restricted country where you don't have freedom of the press, like this. This could be very eye-opening to hear that in the United States, people are allowed to produce news stories that are critical of the government. Yeah, um, and so there were generations of uh, of radio being made uh, all overseas by this agency, and it's. Diff- I don't think we have a smoking gun, but our guests on Radio Survivor were willing to speculate that it would appear as though some of the coverage on these radios that uh, are all overseas of Donald Trump's uh, first impeachment uh, caught the attention of the administration and they wanted to um, make uh, significant changes to how those radios functioned. Uh, They wanted to start tinkering with the editorial content, um, which Which, is uh, changing the mission of the entire agency. And it it makes a lot of sense if you think about that president – enjoying having media outlets that were favorable to him and and realizing that there actually is a US media outlet so how can this be harnessed and so yeah how could he not how could he not try to control this this entity 
So under the new leadership of, of Voice of America, you know, some things have happened that have troubled a lot of the longtime journalists there. And, and most recently, uh, a some new staffers were installed and um, and they were forced to air a speech by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and one of the journalists at Voice of America. So journalists were upset about that to begin with, being forced to air content that they saw as propagandistic. Um, and then one of the journalists asked a critical question of Pompeo at the end, and apparently that was not appreciated by these new um, administrators at Voice of America. So that journalist was reassigned. It was a White House. Yeah, journal. my understanding is that actually Pompeo had a, an, actually an interview more or less with the head of, of, uh, right. of Voice of America on, on air. And there were, had been questions submitted from you know the the news staff from the from the newsroom, um, and the critical ones were left out, and and so on 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 his way out, uh, both of the studio, uh, one journalist, the White House, uh, the White House reporter, right, the person on the White House right. beat, confronted uh, you know their boss as well as as Mike Pompeo uh, regarding why these questions hadn't been asked, and and asking uh, and then asking asking those particular questions. Right. And summarily, you know, and, and, and that reporter was, you know, summarily criticized, like, how could you? And um, so this really flies in the face of everything that these journalists think that they should be allowed to do. Like, we should be allowed to ask critical questions of somebody who's giving a speech here. And, and, the, and the speech also had content that was sort of uh, leaning towards the message that Voice of America should be showing the best of America. So the speech itself um, parts of it, I guess, could be interpreted as this interpretation of Voice in America that's different from what what it what it has is been right. to be. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> I mean, in a lot I, of ways you I, I make you can make almost a parallel to what you see often in student media, whether it's high school or college or university, right? And that um, student journalists, right, often endeavor to be critical of their of of the school. So often it's, there is boosterism of course, in the same way that like a town newspaper is often a booster of local commerce and local events, but they should also be critical of administrations and student journalists often come in for trouble when they uh, pursue stories that are overly critical of administrations uh, at universities or high schools. And, and you find the similar kind of, uh, kind of friction and, and, you know, to such an extent that there's been court action uh, helping to establish some of the rights of student journalists to have the ability to, to cover uh, uh, stories critically for their, for their newspapers. And I think that it's almost a similar sort of circumstance that you have here with, with the voice of America. Um, and that's actually, like, and as a high school journalist, oh, yeah. that was one of the first things that our advisor taught us was, you know, we are not the mouthpiece of the school. And if you feel, even as your, as your advisor, if you feel like I am not, um, you feel like I'm getting in the way of you doing a story. Here's the phone number for the ACLU. So like that was our, hmm. um, it was important as part of our journalistic training to not be afraid of tackling stories that were critical of the school or the administration right. and to know our rights. 
And, 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 you know, and journalists uh, encounter these kind of conflicts that they have to navigate kind of in any organization. The New York Times is sometimes called upon to do critical reporting on the New York Times or NPR is sometimes called upon to do critical reporting about NPR. Um, you know, so these are navigated and, and it's often, you know, generally part of uh, widely accepted journalistic ethics that, that in fact, you allow that reporting to happen. That that yeah. being that being you know I don't, roughly I don't think the transparent. Times has a public editor right now, or I don't know their name. They used to be more famous in uh, recent decades. Who? Well, the public editor of the New York Times. I don't believe um, they have one right now. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I believe they, they don't. I, I believe that, they don't have a public editor. That's right a now. form of accountability that right. they've. Uh, so every organization well, sort of has a, does a dance of accountability. Exactly. Sure. Well, and I will and say that Voice dance. of America, Voice of America, has been writing stories about this very issue. Mm-hmm. So they are they are covering the breadth of the. Uh, they're covering the stories about their own staffers yeah. um, complaining about things happening at the I mean, organization. I hate, I hate to say it, but and I'm just going to say it briefly. But this was the issue that sort of uh, um, was one of the final straws in the Pacifica troubles of the late '90s, early 2000s. Was was the right of the journalists at the station to cover the news of the network um, that became the flashpoint when the managers of the network um, censored the coverage of their right. own stories. And it's always a discussion inside of organizations and it's and it's a valid discussion to have is is that certainly you run the risk of then because because an argument or, or controversy can be so hot within the walls of an organization it can threaten to to edge out other other important stories, right? Uh, off, you know, it becomes a funhouse room of mirrors. Um, you know, in, in terms of the ca- the points and counterpoints, which you know, and I certainly remember during the 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 the, the hottest parts of, of controversies over Pacifica during uh, you know the the turn of the century. That even in community radio stations, people were worried that there was just too much discussion of it. That it 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 it, it, it you risked uh, folks it just becoming an insider's kind of ball game, yeah. right? That it becoming all about us rather than providing that that lens, you know. And then that that all of this, yeah. There's a difference between sort of airing dirty laundry versus reporting, right? And it's a balance. And 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 I don't, you know, I won't hazard to offer any sort of guidance or say that there is what is what is a best practice or rather than that it's a question that should be that should be taken up but i, I wanted to say something you know specifically about voice of america right and because you 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 started this conversation jennifer pointing out how you know the voice of america part of its you know propaganda mission ostensibly because you know and that's many people dismiss voice of america especially folks who who, who are on who are progressive and, and critical of of of, of American foreign affairs as merely a propaganda arm, right? As, as only the voice of sort of uh, American hegemony, but that part of that, you know, mission even so was one to, to uh, promote a free press, right? To promote what, what are thought of as, as sort of American values around freedom of speech. And, and that the voice of American fact in many ways has affected that. And that you could certainly criticize the coverage of the voice of America, but that, that criticism often is, is very similar to the criticism you would offer of the American mainstream press in general. You would you could offer you you would you would level a lot of the same complaints about a CNN or a, or a New York Times or an NPR for that yeah, matter. Especially in, especially in times of um, American wars abroad, right. like the the mainstream media 
um, it's does, true. does a terrible job of covering the news uh, when when the United States goes to war. It's yeah, and that's that's worth pointing out. Uh, when I hear when I hear some of these tidbits from Pompeo's speech, you realize it could be a lot worse, though. You know, because he was yeah. criticizing Voice of America for demeaning America, right? For merely you know being critic. uh, anything critical being is critical <laughs> right right well, that's, the, that's the trump administration war on truth that right. we could we could spend an hour and a half uh just scratching the surface but of, where, of, I, where of, i wanted to take this is yeah, is, is sort of noting that the voice of america you know is not only about news right and right. A, a lot of its mission has been has been cultural mm-hmm. right and 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 you can hear anecdotes and stories from folks who who lived behind the Iron Curtain, who turned to Voice of America to learn about popular culture, to learn right, about... Right, it's a story of border radio, which right. is something we love to tell. Like right, the, the antennas are on yeah. one side of of the of the so-called Iron Curtain, and, and the listeners are on the other, and it's it allows for, yeah, it allows for To hear for jazz, to hear rock and roll. Exactly. Yes, they had, you know, these long-running, incredibly popular music programs, probably akin to what, you know, we uh, think of on community radio, just right. these very knowledgeable music hosts. Right, who are not so, just yeah. playing the music, but also discussing the artistry, discussing history, discussing the connections that, that these artists share. And I actually and have a personal the, connection I, to some of this I know, Paul, I, I want you to get your anecdote, but I'm just excited also about how um, one of the things that we learned from our experts on Voice of America on this episode of Radio Survivor was just how, just even that, even the way a radio DJ does their job, that 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 professional behavior being broadcast into the country had a huge impact on that country's uh, radio culture as it grew in its own way. Mm-hmm. Um, they got to hear they got to hear things and they got to do it their own. You know it. It's a nice thing about communication. Yeah, once, once those, once, once, right, once the, the, the countries were uh, more independent and free from Soviet domination. Um, you know, my, my grandmother, my, my father's mother, um, my father is uh, was Estonian heritage. My grandparents came to the United States after World War II. Um, they were essentially fleeing the Soviets who came to dominate Estonia, which is a Baltic nation. It's the northernmost of the three Baltic states, uh, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. It's just south of Finland. Um, they're on the Baltic Sea and just across the sea, say, from Stockholm in Sweden. And uh, my grandmother uh, was a lawyer um, in, in Estonia, and she passed the D.C. bar in the United States. And she went to work for the Library of Congress. She was actually a copyright lawyer, um, and my my grandfather uh, himself was also a lawyer and uh, became a judge uh, in uh, the Department of Defense, actually Department of the Navy for contract law. But my grandmother was asked in the 1990s to give a series of lectures or, or kind of informational programs on Voice of America in Estonian about the United States Constitution. Right. And, and you have to understand that this is a time when she was doing this was at the fall of the Soviet Union. Right. So this was a time in which Estonia was about to become an independent nation, uh, uh, something which it, it had not been, you know, for, for very much of its entire existence um, as a state. Um, and so it's also this opportunity, right, to, to educate people about United States history and political history. Right. And, you know, and, and, and again, not, not to give these lectures as, 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 um, un, uncritical, 
right, is, is, is reverential, but really, you know, to, to, to provide background and historical information about this document, right, that continues to sort of serve as, as, as the foundation for our, uh, for our government and, and, and laws for Paul, better or worse. Jennifer and I did not know about this. Yeah. I know, this And is you're amazing. revealing this information to Radio Survivor's we went- your, your friends at Radio Survivor are finding out right now that your grandmother produced a series of radio programs to educate Estonians on the U.S. Constitution in the 1990s. Yes. I know. And we would have asked the archivists about it. Is it in any of these archives? Yeah, I, I, I expect it does. Somewhere uh, we have How many sets. hours? Uh, many. Um, offhand, I don't honestly know. Um, I only really and thought about it today, Estonian? to tell you the truth. Uh, and I want to know, like, who was it scripted? Was there an outline? Yeah, you know, so like, it was, did yeah, your grandmother so, work with a producer? Yeah, she where did. did and where I, did she go and to I, record it? In many ways, she was the voice. I mean, she participated in, in the construction, but she certainly was not the only person who wrote it. But yes, you know, because uh, she was, you know... Uh, how many Estonian Americans uh, of her generation are there who are, uh, you know, are steeped in American uh, law, right? So have passed the American bar and understand right. it, and, and and speak, and also therefore understand and understand Estonian law and under Estonian legal history in particular, and of course are fluent in English and, and Estonian. It's a small nation of just a few just, million people. Um, you know, it's a, it's a fairly Ugh. small set. Plus, she worked at the Library of Congress, and so was well connected with, you know, uh, people throughout. Uh, Washington, D.C. So I have a short, Amazing. similar story where I know that my father's father um, did radio in Los Angeles. And the, the going family story is that it was in Yiddish language, that he had a Yiddish language radio show. And that's the end of my sentence. I don't know anything else about it. And what's so exciting about your grandmother's Estonian educational broadcast to teach uh, to teach constitutional law to the to the newly freed people of Estonia in the 1990s is that um, I you know Jennifer like what would you, what would be the first step for Paul to find this tape? It's oh out well, there. I'm, it's so much easier to find than oh my yeah no we would tape. Uh, I would well I would ask Brandon Burke who is on our episode because I feel like he might have access to some of these archives. So. Right. He's the radio archivist for Voice of America. Yeah. I mean, oh, well, yeah, he's at the Hoover, the Hoover archives where they have a big collection mm-hmm. of materials. So. so Paul just needs to take like a two month vacation. To <laughs> research yeah, this. Perfect time to do it right now. But yeah. And so, Paul, how did you learn about did you hear about this? Oh, what did happen? Yeah, no, I mean, certainly. No, my, my grandparents told me about it as it was happening. Um my grandfather was quite proud of it. Right, because you were a teenager at this yeah, stage. Yeah, I was like a teenager at the time. So my grandfather was quite proud of it. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's – my grandmother, you know, obviously quite accomplished, you know, uh, she was born in, you know, 1920. So not a lot of women of her generation were lawyers, um, you know, and would go on to be lawyers at, you know, two different – you know, essentially two different systems, um, the Estonian system, which is based much more on German law, and then uh, the U.S. system, which is based much more on, on British law. But there was a, you know, this is a slight digression, um, but there was a program in place uh, in, in the late 1940s and early 50s specifically intended to help um, lawyers who were trained in the German system learn the American system and pass the bar so that you would not have to go back to law school. Right. I mean, and this is sort of how uh, speaks to how 
much uh, our, our our government and culture uh, invested a lot of resources in that time to help uh, fresh immigrants, uh, you know, find their footing and, and as well share, you know, share their gifts essentially with with our with our nation. And certainly, you know, I am a I am a you know now a couple of generations away a benefactor of that because it certainly allowed my grandparents to have a very good life here, um, which you know they were able to pass on uh, to my father and me. Um, and then this is just one little little piece of it, and, and it's certainly something I wish uh, I wish to see for many more people. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting because you, Paul, as you mentioned at the beginning of your anecdote, like your grandparents um, uh, were not leaving a peaceful nation, you know, voluntarily. It was not a it was not like a, a cruise across the seas. No, they to spent come to the they States. spent years in displaced persons camps in, in yeah in uh, in in eastern and then western Germany. Um, it was not a good time, and they were they were very they were very fortunate to be able to uh, eventually emigrate to the United States. But during that time, they were they did not know when where they would be able to emigrate to and when. Uh, Paul, uh, thank you so much for sharing that. Oh, I know, ahead. and this may be something you can't answer, but when your grandmother was doing this this show on Voice of America, did you hear any anecdotes about whether or not she might have heard this type of programming when she was in Estonia? No, I did not hear that. I, um, I, I know I, I don't know to what extent that they they did or did not hear any um, Voice of America um, when she when they lived in Estonia prior to 1944. Hmm. We need we need to hear the lost pre-interview from yeah. her voice goodness, her yes, yeah, goodness, <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, um, you know she is no longer with us, and it, and it's been a few, it's been a number of years. Um, in, in that interim, I mean, certainly, uh, my uh, my grandfather helped to pass on a love of radio. He certainly gifted me many radios as a child, and I'm actually I'm very lucky that both my grand my grandfathers did so. Uh, my uh, my mother's father uh, in Des Moines, Iowa, was also uh, uh, himself a tinkerer and, and and very into electronics, and um, also sort of helped to uh, inculcate my my love of, of radio and communications. So it, that the lineage comes comes long, and and uh, my grandfather uh, Reese Mendel, my father's uh, father, had had many uh, enormous shortwave radios about his house. He ah. mostly didn't. They mostly we, and there were times I do recall sitting down and, and 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 with him and and tuning through the dial. And this is back when the dials would have been marked with countries. Hmm. So oh, these yeah. are radios of of nineteen fifties ish uh, vintage Grundigs. Right. Uh, a German brand, um, you know, and so you would know you, you where to find different nations uh, on the dial uh, as the frequencies tend to be a little fixed uh, compared to how they've been in, in more recent history. Um, and we tuned in here and there, but I would say, you know, on, on generally speaking, he was mostly consuming American media. You know, he liked he liked the uh, they lived in, in the Washington, D.C. area in Tacoma Park. And he was a, he was a very big fan of the uh, Washington football team. So certainly listen to a lot of those games. I wish I wish we could all go back and talk to our grandparents about radio. And uh, I I don't have grandparent anecdotes about radio, but my dad did refinish this radio that was taller than I was at the time that that got stations from all over the world. And I remember standing up at it, and I have photos of of me at this radio and my dad sort of holding my hand back, you know, cause he probably didn't want me to touch the dials. 
I, I have another anecdote about my grandfather. Um, this one's bittersweet, but uh, if we go back to, um, to 2017, um, unfortunately, he had a bad fall. He was still alive then, and, and um, he ended up having to be in the hospital. And, and I went to go visit him. And, uh, you know, in, at, uh, I think, Georgetown Medical Center in, in Washington, D.C. And, you know, he, he, you know, they had him on a lot of drugs, um, but he was cogent and talkative. And I went to see him. He was very happy to see me. And he said, uh, Paul, I have a question for you. And I said, OK. He's like, what do you think Trump is going to do with the FCC? <laughs> Whoa. Because my grandfather. It's all circular. Very much, uh, very much into policy, uh, you know, a, a researcher to the end, a scholar to the end. He's, he's he'd published many papers uh, about um, uh, the status of, of Estonia and Estonians under under Soviet rule vis-a-vis uh, -vis international law. Um, and he often often we would talk because he knew it was an interest of mine. He'd off, we'd often talk about um communications policy as you do with your grandparents right <laughs> but i just i felt it was sort of it was very <laughs> amusing to me you know because he probably wasn't feeling very well but <laughs> immediately this is what he wanted to uh to chat with me a little bit about <laughs> as he sits in hospital bed That's wonderful. so well you can point now, you know, to now maybe that gives you podcast. an understanding <laughs> in, of of of, of yeah. my uh, <laughs> what makes me such a hit at parties <laughs> how fun well, yeah. Well, hopefully, the, these um, these podcasts are transmitting to him through the ether somewhere, and he's catching would, up on all of it. I would hope so. I would hope so. <laughs> he he was he was a reader of Radio Survivor. He was a reader of uh, of my previous blogs, and he definitely liked me to send him anything that I that I had written uh, in my previous uh, attempt at an academic career. I don't think he's he ever got a, he ever quite figured out how to do the podcast. How funny! Well, I want to let listeners know that. Uh, I encourage them to take a listen to episode number 265 of Radio Survivor, where uh, Jennifer produced a, a really, really comprehensive. We had so many guests, it should have been three episodes. Uh, we talked about the history of Voice of America, um, which we knew so little about. It's such, such a, uh, just a giant part of world radio history that, um, that we, that we could still learn some more. And, uh, that, that episode's available in the show notes to today's episode at radiosurvivor.com. We are uh, recording right now episode uh, 281. You're listening also to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reismandel. Uh With me are Eric Klein and Jennifer Waite. And Jennifer, we, we want to put you on the spot a little bit. Oh, no. We know you've started another podcast. And Yes, and I've been invited to be on. I... Uh, yes, I'm part of another podcast. <laughs> well, it's interesting to us, right? Because, you know, we don't – at least part of like what we like to talk about is the opportunities available, right, uh, that, that podcasting provides or community radio provides or college radio provides. And, and, and one of the things that I get asked all the time outside of Radio Survivor often is, is gosh, with all these podcasts, is it too late to get started? Is all the great opportunities happen? Or is it because, uh, you know, now that Spotify is in the podcast and now we hear uh, Apple's going to start producing its own podcast, is it just too late? Is there just no room? Right, which I want to say is 
I know what you're, we've, you know, we've had this conversation for five years, Paul, but I just want to say that, that that framework is one of the most frustrating things to me whenever I talk to anyone about podcasts is that you've, you've misunderstood the reason to do the work. Um, if you're, if you're, if the only goal you have is, uh, fame and notoriety of thousands upon thousands of listeners and exponential growth, delightful, good luck to you. But, um, I will predict you'll quit in a month or two. Um, if that is your only goal and it's so important and so, um, wonderful when podcasts and podcasters have a different set of, um, plans for the work. And, and if you, you know, if you want to grow your audience, that's a very healthy way to engage in the work. But, um, there, there should be another reason to do it. Even if the three people recording the podcast are the only three people that ever listen to every episode, that should still benefit uh, the, the group. Yeah, to me, if there's, you know, it's like writing a book. If you have a burning, if you have an idea that is just eating away at you and you feel like you need to get that out to the people, you know, to me, you should write a book. And, and that's the same with a podcast. If you have this idea that is just haunting you and you've been, and you want to turn it into a podcast, I think you should. And, and Eric has said before, you know, people need to, if people have that desire, they need to just like do it and stop talking about it and analyzing it, just get started. And, you know, there's not really, there's no reason not to. Yeah, it's, it's the mantra. It's the calling uh, to to arms of alternative media to begin with. Th- that there's always new viewpoints, and we shouldn't let the 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 ma- any sort of mainstream domination uh, cause us not to want to to place more voices out there. Right. And- well, and I I would add that it's also um, it's personal growth. Uh, you start writing that book. Because you don't know everything about the topic you're excited exactly. about. Exactly. You start the podcast because you're passionate about it, but the act of the podcast makes you know you can start a podcast that you're passionate about, and years later you're now an expert because you podcast. Yeah, it's I think that's no why. Listen to you. I think that's why starting can be so daunting and challenging for people, and and I found this even. So I was invited to be part of this. Uh, project and and we've all collaborated on what it is becoming but i think getting started was maybe the hardest part you know what is it that we want to talk about how are we going to structure it and you know are there other podcasts out there on this topic what can we how are we different i'm glad that's the way you're thinking about it right and you know because in particular it's not even that you need to be different but it's sort of also what are we contributing Additional, right? What is the, you know, rather than echo chamber? I'm curious, what is the topic, Jennifer? I don't even know. <laughs> so we are doing a podcast about the series Twin Peaks, <laughs> which which I mentioned to another friend that I was doing a Twin Peaks podcast, and I was talking kind of for a while about it with her, just generically. And it wasn't until a few minutes that she realized I wasn't talking about the neighborhood in San Francisco. <laughs> oh. Well, that's fine. And is, are you going so, about it episodically? Are you going about it thematically? Yeah. So, so one of the folks behind it has been rewatching Twin Peaks every year, every January for quite oh, wow. a long time. He's a big fan. Yeah. And and a couple of his, his friends have been telling him, you know, you really need to do a podcast about this. This seems like a great idea. And and so, so finally, that has 
come to finally it's happening and and yeah and there are a lot of podcasts out there that are these rewatch type right. podcasts where people are rewatching episodes of episode things. by episode and they and they, they analyze each one in in sequence more or less yeah exactly and and so two it's four of us two of us have not seen the new showtime series the new show or well it's not new anymore but the so most Twin recent Peaks, yeah yeah the Twin greatest Peaks. film of 2018 Hands awesome. down, top ten list, so good. I can't wait, and well, and a lot of people. We're, we're like a normal podcast now, friends. So two, so two of us have not seen the Showtime series, uh, and the other, the other two have watched the original Twin Peaks and and the series and the movies. They've watched everything sort of over and over and over again. Um, There's a radio station in the new Showtime series, Jennifer. Oh, I'm even more excited. Yes, so you will, so you'll be thrilled. So at the time that the Showtime series came out, I did not have access to Showtime. Um, and then I also heard you really need to rewatch Twin Peaks before you watch that. So that was part of the reason why this <laughs> there was... There are no rules. I know. But that was part of the reason why this uh, this idea of this podcast was interesting to me, because then it's a way for me to get caught up, rewatch everything, and be prepared for the new... Enjoy the, new se- the new-ish series while having all of the backstory fresh in my mind. So, so yeah, we recorded, we've recorded our pilot episode about the pilot of Twin Peaks and we're getting ready to record our next episode. So do you think you're going to go episode by episode or are you going to more, you're going to do each one? Okay. So each episode will be about one episode and then we may have episodes that are about, there was a film fire walk with me. So we'll probably have an episode about that. And then Have have you set a schedule to record? No, we're still kind of working that out week by week. Yeah. Uh, Have you released the pilot yet? Are you still getting geared no, up? No, we're going to... Yeah. So I think we're going to do it... I believe we did this with Radio Survivor when we started. I think we're going to record a few episodes before we start releasing them. We, we I, th- I don't know if we had... How many we had in the can. We had like two. But we, yeah. <laughs> but Eric and I were so committed. And we really managed to pull it out. And then, you know, of course, once we made the commitment to be on the radio... Uh, I know. Then we were we. There's no looking back. um, Exactly. Have something out every every week here, 281 weeks in a row. um, As it as it turns out. I know, and this is you know, this is more casual, but it's amazing how even a casual podcast we're approaching it. I mean, like initially, I was kind of blown away by the level of detail that people were putting into their. You know, my my co-hosts were writing up these big documents that were um, Ooh, doing nice. outlines of every episode. And I was like, ah, so I'm going to watch each episode basically the week we record. So I'm not, I'm not working ahead. Some people are like super enthusiastic. Oh yeah. I, I and think working you have a, well, I think, you know, everyone having a different perspective and take is helpful. Yeah. Right? Cause everybody's hyper researched uh, that might, um, you might clash too much, and exactly. And so you're, you're figuring out that you're all obviously at this point remote. Do you all live in San Francisco? No, no. no. Okay. Um, uh, two people live in Seattle. One person lives in right. Pennsylvania. Oh, so this could you couldn't even conceivably like you know when, when in normal times Eric and I at least are in the same place most of the time. We like we we prefer to actually be in the same room because we both live in the same city. And yeah, it, this w- podcast would have sounded different. I wouldn't have. Uh... There wouldn't be so many little blips of Eric trying to get to get his turn at the microphone if uh, 
if we were in the same room, we could have been we could have been waving our arms and eye contact. Uh, Jennifer, so I think the best reason to podcast in the format that you have uh, chosen with your friends, um, again, regardless of how big of an audience that grows out of it, is the connections that get made with the people that you're working with. You're you have you have developed a system uh, to schedule a phone call with structure with the people that you uh, like and enjoy their company. And well, I, I well, and I might add, I only know superpower of podcasting. So I only knew one of the people ahead of time. Right, so, one, but now they're going to be your new friend. I know. Yeah. So one, the person who told me about the project I've known for quite a long time and he's close with another person. And then the main guy who was rewatching it every year, uh, the the fourth person is a friend of his that dates back to high school years. So, so it's close friends intersecting on this yeah, uh, group of people. It's another, I mean, there was a Saturday night live sketch last year that made fun of the, uh, it was actually about um, whether uh, it, it was a sketch that the joke was that a dad would use podcasting in order to connect with his son and that there was no other way to engage in in open communication between the dad and the boy. Uh, That's hilarious. The grown boy in this case <laughs> without podcasts. And right. it struck me. It killed me because um, I have a podcast with my son and that right. structure of it. But uh, the point I'm trying to make for the audience is just that that's another thing that, you know, you might not think about that as a listener, but um, producers of podcasts are growing their relationships with their guests in in ways that are uh, immeasurable and incredible. I mean, from from my part, Jennifer and I are good friends and we didn't know each other prior to the podcast being produced. And in fact, uh, 99.9% of the conversations that we have with each other are recorded and broadcast on the podcast. And yet, um, you know, there's, it's, it's a really, it's a really, uh, lesser known superpower of engaging in the work of producing a podcast that I want to evangelize to everyone out there. Um, when you, when you do this work together, um, it's a it's a way to learn to listen. It's a way to learn to structure talking and your time. Um, my podcast with my son, which I think I only recorded sixteen episodes. You know, we would kind of do one once a month. Uh, definitely rewired my brain and turned me into a better listener as a father. And I think that uh, uh, I've I have tried in my life to to tell young people. I've had the opportunity to do this a, a handful of times. That um, you know, middle school students that podcasting is a great way to to sit and have a structured conversation i had a, one young person uh, approach me after a class i taught who um his mom actually was telling me how happy they were about the podcasting class i taught because this young man was then interviewing his grandfather to do an oral history podcast you know and and it was like once you once you sort of open up the if podcasts are only being produced to be hit podcasts, then no kid is ever going to interview their grandpa, you know, because because there's only so much audience for that. But if if you open your mind as to why these shows need to be worked on, um, everybody everybody can do it. And it's I think it's just uh, I'm very excited about your podcast launch, Jennifer. I hope that soon we could let the listeners of Radio Survivor uh, will share links as soon as they're available. They're not out in the world yet. But everybody uh, should oh, yeah. think about the 
Yes, you heard it here first. In I, doing I, the work. I know. Well, I love I love your story about interviewing the grandparents and if if we had more oral history podcasts with family members like that, that would be amazing. Like what what an incredible thing to put into the archive for for the family and and just for the world generally. Um I was just going to say that, you know, working in commercial podcasting so i get exposed to many of the of celebrities who get into podcasting and they say the same thing and i think that they are sincere with like a conan o'brien or uh, rob lowe i've heard from in particular who both sort of talked about how because you know often they talk for a living on talk shows but that they don't really get to have real conversations and that, you know, and, and, and it can sound glib and, and, you know, to the point at which some people kind of think it did, you know, feel like it's, well, that's just sort of, you know, it's the same old BS, right? They're, but yeah, they're still doing marketing. They're still doing marketing. But, you know, for the ones who've turned out to be good at it, um, I mean, it comes across as true, um, yeah. you know, and, and it was Conan O'Brien who, 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 uh, who sort of said, you know, who actually, you know, told us and, and fully sincerely that he was now talking to many of his guests on his television show who said, yeah, no, I just booked this because I was hoping then you'd book me on your podcast because that actually seems like more fun because we can actually we can actually sit down and talk, you know, and not everyone's I mean, frankly, not everyone's good at it. you right. And, and it is also the case that I know that dozens and dozens of celebrity talk shows get pitched now podcasts because it seems like an easy extra line way to stay busy in between um, in between paid gigs or in between, you know, uh, acting gigs and such. And, and only a fraction of them get picked up because within the core of the podcast industry, folks who've been in, been doing this for, for more than a year or two, it's, it's well known that no, it takes skill. it, It takes skill and dedication and you got to show up and you got to be willing they you know no matter who you are you have to be willing to learn how to do this just because you've had a talk show or you've been a guest on many talk shows doesn't mean you know television talk shows i mean where you get you know 6 minutes if you're lucky um to have a conversation 6 uh, minutes that you have a rehearsal beforehand you have a rehearsal, and a producer pre interview etc yeah. right that you're that you're really ready and prepared to, to to carry this off and I, do it and do it week after week and to do it, you know, 26 to 52 times a year, um, is so, is so much more. Um, and you know, and I think even if there are 12 other twin peaks podcasts, I don't know that there are, I'm, which there know, probably are, but, <laughs> oh, come on, but not, there's at least 700, but not yeah. all of them have you, I mean, and, and, and so there's something there. Not all of them necessarily have your friends or your friends' friends who will be tuning in to listen and who right. may turn on other people. And that there's multiple ways uh, to go about something. And and you know I I I will I'm going to double back on the point I made that you know the the, the very raison d'etre of, of alternative media is that we believe there's more space. And and, and you know 25 years ago when the internet was not capable of transmitting audio well, when um, you mostly had to fight for space on a radio dial or fight for, or even less space on a television dial or even a cable dial, right? 
um, people were fighting uh, pitched battles both in terms of policy, right? They were doing it in Washington to get more television or or have, uh, you know, satellite television space part of like DirecTV being licensed, they had to agree to give over a certain number of channels to nonprofit entities. The same thing is true of Sirius and XM Satellite Radio. They gave over a certain number of channels as a provision of being licensed as, as effective duopolies and monopolies. And people fought those pitched policy battles to, to get that space for community radio, for low-power FM, right? Um, and so it, it sort of would be sad to me if people then look at podcasting where you don't have to fight so hard to get the microphone and to get the space to go, well, uh, there's, there's too many. Uh, uh, I'll never be, I'll never be uh, Ira Glass, Right. Whereas, you know, 25 years ago, the fight was I'm not fighting to be Ira Glass or or I'm not I'm not fighting, you know, uh, to be Katie Couric. I'm just fighting to to be heard at all. (laughs) Right. I think, um, you know, we like I was mentioning, the hardest part really was figuring out how are we going to structure this? What is what is the episode going to look like? You know, like with Radio Survivor, we have we have a structure in place. We typically have a guest. We interview them, or weeks like this where we didn't have a guest, we chat with each other. Right. Also, we, though, uh, worth noting, five years ago, our structure was totally different. And exactly. We, by doing it, you know, it it was a hundred episodes or so before it really probably hit a groove of okay, this is our, this is our structure. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and that's what I was going to say. You know, when we started Radio Survivor, we had like a college radio corner where I would give college <laughs> radio updates, and. And so I think with the with the Twin Peaks podcast we're doing, we realize that and we're giving ourselves permission. So we recorded the, the first episode. We made a few little tweaks and then we're going to record the next one with maybe a few things that are different. But we also know that it might change. It might be very different after five episodes when we kind of hit our stride. And that's OK. Like we don't you don't have to have everything figured out ahead of time when you start because that is going to paralyze you. Yes. And yeah. It, it was already sort of difficult to start. And then you have all the just normal logistics, like what time of day, you know, what day of the week is going to work for all of us right. in different time zones every week. And again, I think if your goal is, okay, here we are, this is our first podcast and, you know, we're planning on having a Patreon and getting to $10,000 by by the end of three months, of course there's going to – the pressure – mounts and every decision the stakes are so high that odds are you're going to give up before you release that first episode because it's never going to be uh, ready for prime time and podcasts right. aren't prime time the our goals the goal to start should be to to start <laughs> well just like a community radio show or a college just, yeah, radio show most of the time you know, we we can't speak in, in, in grand generalities, but most of the time, you know, in, in a, at a college or community radio station, which is fundamentally volunteer driven and, and, the, and the programmers are volunteers and have, you know, a high degree or of say or ultimate degree of say over what their shows are like. Right. Um, th- they develop over time. Right. And, you know, what they turn out to be, you know, a year or two in is different than, than what they start. And but. But because of the nature of of radio, which requires uh, there be something on every minute, um, you know, 
usually speaking, you know, say a college radio station is going to be okay uh, by the third week of the of the of the quarter of the semester. You know, everybody's in their spot, and you're you got to be ready to go. And there's no waiting around. You just got to do it. The, the 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 time has to be filled. And if you agree to do it, you do it. And if you don't agree to do it, well, sorry, next. You know, and if and- it's live radio. You know, when doing a live radio show, yeah, you just have to do it. And yeah, there's more room for over analysis when you're recording a podcast because you might stop and you never know when to start. Yeah. Yeah. And and podcasting, though, I mean, really grew out of that. I will argue that podcasting actually grew out of more of the live radio tradition than in the script, than in the the fully pre recorded scripted tradition, right? Because folks who took to it often were not had maybe some radio experience or or contact with radio but often weren't really folks who who you would call radio professionals or had a lot of training and because of the low stakes right because of the low cost of entry by and large compared to so many other media platforms you know that that was embraced and it's and it's become a cliche or joke in some ways of it just being you know three dudes drinking beer in a basement somewhere um you know and but it's grown so much more beyond that but then yes i i've I've often been a little disheartened in talking to with with people often scholars or, or folks with really important perspectives that they want to pursue and share being caught by feeling like they have to produce something that would pass muster on an npr affiliate well, in, yeah, order, that- in order in order to go and, and and my you know having to say like you know those may be the podcasts that you listen to exactly. or they or, or your your sense is that your your peers who are sort of the core demographic for NPR listen to but really if your objective is is to reach a broader audience is to to really think about the fact that uh, th- there, there's many more aesthetics out there and especially in podcasting. Exactly. And then if you think about the history of podcasting and, you know, we've learned on the show about audio bloggers and, you know, that early amateur podcasters were very much against the prof- the professional style of some of these slickly produced podcasts that came later. So right. it, the history of podcasting was not that podcasts were born, born as this uh, fully formed, you know, hyper-produced piece of audio a lot of them were were very very simple and they continue to be i mean yeah right i mean some of the most popular podcasts out there shows like my favorite murder got uh pod save america are effectively chat shows right they may be they prepare in the same way that that it sounds like you're preparing jennifer and your and your colleagues are, are preparing for the twin peaks podcast right but but effectively you know they're cutting close to live to tape like we are live to tape there's no tape but live to recording and then maybe there's some editing but you know they're they're turned out weekly or more frequently you know the company where i work uh stitcher which has its roots in earwolf right earwolf was started as a comedy podcast network it's not stand-up it's not scripted comedy it was experienced improvisers sitting around a table with and, and and each show having a different topic or different um, uh, sort of uh, well uh, approach to how it would go about its business, but ultimately to, more or less live to tape for an hour or two or more. Except I have out to, week to week. I know Paul, you have worked at Earwolf for much longer than I listened to it, but I was a listener on day one of the podcasts 
that Earwolf was putting out. And one of the parts of I, I worked in radio at the time, and then I was a huge fan of the work they were doing. And um, podcast number one of uh, Comedy Death Ray and podcast number two and podcast number three and four and five was an ongoing experiment that oh, landed oh, on – Yeah, what became Comedy yeah. Bang Bang. So there was times like I'm remembering now that Scott Ackerman would invite on a stand-up and the stand-up would do five minutes of material. Rather than no integrating audience. them into the way the show is, in which the yeah. show is is a radio show, is is it's almost really it's 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 conceit that is where, where you have guests, but then is interrupted uh, because they yeah. have an open door right. policy by people who yeah, come on and, so, and yeah, play characters they, and improvise around the they characters. Developed, they developed it into a chat show, but at the time, yeah, it was in, more of a radio one, show. In, yeah, in, and in he played music and he actually worked at a radio station, yeah. and then also when the as the as the comedy network grew, oh, he had, he had a um, he had a segment that was a d- disaster that um, Doug Benson, podcast professional and, and uh, actor and stand-up delightful comedian. comedian, would call in from the road. Right. This is a segment of early episodes of Comedy Death Ray, now known as Comedy Bang Bang, uh, before before the Earwolf podcast network was invented. Uh, these segments were a disaster. They never worked. They tried them seven times and then stopped. And so there was always there was. And then the the other thing I remember as a listener, as a fan of the work, was um, there were podcasts that came and went uh, as much like there are now, but in a, in a way that was much more of a uh, er, the early days. Um, yeah. So different th- different things were tried, right? And well, and, uh, and the reason I, I bring this up is right is it is it now the the larger company produces both things that are scripted, right? That are journalistic. That, that might sound more like something you would hear on This American Life, in addition to continuing to produce weekly interview shows, weekly improvised comedy shows uh, that are far more off the cuff. And I think it's super instructive to if, if there are podcasts that, that you admire or, or that you wish – you could emulate or maybe you're like wow I, you know i would love to have that kind of success is to go back if you can go back to episode one if they if they if it's still even available yeah if and they haven't just, changed if they haven't changed the record you know right like, if they haven't episode changed one the record might, and, and and to we'll listen, even go back to episode one of radio survivor <laughs> right right it's it you know and and to see you know what's episode it's one very interesting 10, what's 100 200 300 and and years ago i mean i, I wrote a little bit about this about on, on radio survivor about WTF with Mark Marin when he was celebrating at that time, which sounded like a huge uh, anniversary for a podcast because we're going back now, I think about five years. It was maybe two or three hundred. And he would he was memorializing each hundred, right? And he would himself look back at his the previous hundred and the previous hundred because early on in WTF with Mark Marin, which is a well-known, comparatively speaking, podcast. It's been going on something like 10 years. It also came out of radio because he had been working at Air America and got fired. Um, if people remember the Air America liberal sort of podcast right. network is an answer to sort of the Sean Hannity's and Rush Limbaugh's of the world. He'd been fired but retained keys to the studios right. and was going in at night with his producer, uh, Brendan, who I think at the time still actually worked there, um, to record this podcast. And it also – now the podcast, in the way it's been for a number of hundreds of episodes, is he basically – each one is an interview um, – 
you know, usually celebrities these days, but sometimes authors and other folks he finds interesting, preceded by somewhere between five to 15 minutes of him kind of sharing his life, right? So he's part of the the subject matter. Which has ruined podcasting culture. Because it's hard to be good at that. Yeah, Yeah, it's hard to be good at it. He's very good at it. Because he's a stand-up comedian who built his career on storytelling. I would also argue that he's not that great at it, and that's why I don't listen to the show anymore. everyone has a different opinion. He overdoes it. But but uh, enough people think it's good that they listen, right? Um, and but but he lost er, me early on. That's all that and, matters to my podcast. Early on, he had bits, right? He had he had regular guests who come on to do regular segments. Um, you know, it was a little less. I'm just going to have this interview, and a little bit more like, well, here's my friend coming in for a bit, and here's this other guy coming in, and well, here's this other you person. Know, the other thing we've talked in. we've talked about this on the show in previous years, but the other uh, structural framework that made. Uh, WTF the podcast so compelling is that uh, Mark Marin had hit rock bottom. He had, he had just gotten a divorce. He had just lost his job. Right. Uh, everything, about, yeah. everything about his life was a mess. And he also um, uh, probably, I don't know what the timeline was, but he had semi-recently been a drug addict and an alcoholic. I think he'd been sober so, for quite a few years, but he I think owed, he, but he integrated owed a making amends. An apology. Into, yeah. yeah. He was, he, he would actively seek out like early on. Most of it, it, most, I mean, really early conceit of it and how people viewed it was he wasn't talking to celebrities. He was talking to other comedians. He was talking to comedians that, that he owed and them many an of apology. whom he owed them apologies. And so he was, yeah. this was part of his amends process in his 12 step program. And then they would talk shop and it was pretty incredible. Right. Um, only only later show. on would it, it you know, and, and I think a lot of it happened because not so much because he actively sought out celebrities, but that, you know, agents and bookers started proactively contacting him saying, yeah, can good. we can we put this person on your show? Would you talk to this person um, rather it, than inter- the other way? It's interesting how you're talking about. You know how he really brought in his personal life to the front part of the podcast. And as somebody starting a new podcast, that was something that we were talking about. Like how much in this first episode, how much do we talk about who we are? Like on the one hand, why should people listen to it? Like why should my opinion about Twin Peaks hold any weight? But at the same time, do people want to listen to us talking about our backstories? So It comes out. I mean it's a little bit like today. Right. A lot of that conversation about what is that balance. I it's laid on you a piece of history about myself right. that Which you all beautiful. didn't know. Right. And, and it was relevant to what we were talking about. And and I think to some extent I haven't shared it and I haven't thought to share it uh, because it wasn't – we needed we needed the hook, so to speak, right? We needed the news peg. And I think you know when we talk about podcasting, I, you know, I will reveal my background. We talk about college radio. You reveal your background. And it comes out. And I think you know, our uh, – a tenant of, of podcasting in many ways or something that podcasting reintroduced to radio, I think, and audio was the sense of, sub, of, of our own subjectivity and, and that being important. Right and our own positionality being important and vital to what we discuss. So rather than coming at it, f- and, and, and you know, and these were currents. It's not a, a strict innovation owed only to podcasting. We see it in blogging. We see it in all sorts of once uh, access to to distributing media became more democratized. Um, you know, and it be- then we were 
started to step away from the need to be fully objective, right? To be uh, the Stentonian news reporter, to be a Tom Brokaw or a Walter Cronkite, and we could we could be a little more Ira Glass, or we could be a right. little more. Uh, well, Ira Glass never talks about who he is. It's true. Uh, well, and, yeah, and you're right. That, you're right. But, you're right. You know, one of the things that that some of that comes from journalism too is the with, caveats. You right, know, like right. oh, I need to. You know, before we talk about this, I need to point out that right. I work for a podcasting company, you know, like that. Which I do here as well, right? I try to make right. sure exactly. people understand but, that I'll, I, mean, I have skin in the game and can, can therefore take my comments based upon that understanding. What happens right. with stand-ups is that they come from a culture that's, you know, over 100 years old probably of taking a stage and uh, talking about themselves in front of a drunk audience that right. then responds with laughter when they do a good job and dead silence when they do a bad job. And so they hone a set of skills of um, this is what people will respond to, this is relatable, and this isn't. And those skills uh, prior to the invention of podcasting were, you know, decades in the making. You know, Mark Marin spent 10,000 hours on a stage drunk talking to a drunk audience, and he figured out uh, – how did he develop a personality based on, uh, you know, that feedback? A persona, really. Exactly. And so uh, that's how stand-ups approach podcasting in a, in a way that makes them uniquely qualified to talk to uh, uh, an empty room, to talk, you know, to close their eyes and imagine their audience. Um, they've done it. They've done the work. It's, uh, it's crazy now to think about how many... Um, people now start podcasts uh, there is no audience i i also thought it was uh, worth mentioning it's something i've brought up in the last uh what 11 months of pandemic but it still is a developing idea i think that well you know four or five years ago we had a podcast on radio survivor with a guest i'm actually uh, flirting with the idea of having them back on just to sort of do like a uh, re- just to redo the interview again, our guest was uh, Chauncey DeVega, who was a podcaster himself. And the thing that was in my head at that moment was I was excited that I thought podcasts could change the culture, that you know, television and radio had um, developed too hot of a timeline. You know, this is how we talked about it at the time on this episode, that the, 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 the pressure of, of the audience and the medium had sort of you know squeezed out the 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 helpful nature of having a conversation with another human being and i was very excited that podcast was bringing that back into the mainstream of the culture that listening and talking um was back in style and of course that was always on the radio but again because of the consolidation and the lack of diverse voices and the professionalization i guess of radio radio a lot of that listening and talking uh, had been squeezed out of radio, especially in the 90s and the early aughts. Um, you know, that kind of stuff might have been more available in the 70s, I guess, I'm assuming. Um, long-form conversations that may verge into being a little bit dull compared to the hot, the hot you know, um, pace of a, of a conversation with a celebrity on The Tonight Show. Um, and so that started to happen. You know, I think that podcasts did start to change the nature of talking about the news, of listening to to people's voices, of of having a longer attention span for stories. And uh one of the things that I think is really remarkable during the pandemic is I think that that uh the pacing of a conversation that was unique to podcasts in the 21st century has 
started to find its way onto network television because the audience disappeared and because also those hosts um, are podcasters as well. And yeah, I, it's so weird without without the real audiences and with people having conversations over Zoom or video call. I'm seeing much more of a morphing. You know, I watched a podcast the other day that was on YouTube, you know, that had been recorded on Zoom, but it was mm-hmm. ostensibly a podcast. So what is what is a podcast in the pandemic Zoom universe? Right. And well, in this case, I'm going to argue without knowing what your podcast was, that when they called it a podcast, what they were referring to actually was that the nature of the conversation was long form, longer than 20 minutes, that they were listening to each other, that they're asking each other questions a kind of conversation that was not possible on YouTube when the when the time limit of every uploaded video was 12 minutes. And so they yeah. call it a podcast because because of how the conversation unfolds and yeah, what it they, was, what their audience's expectations are. It was a PBS NewsHour conversation about all these different reporters sharing their experiences after the insurrection oh, and, wow. what, and a, what had happened. Put a link in the show notes to that one. I want to yeah, watch. Yeah, no, it was fascinating and chilling and you know as as you both know every day we're hearing and seeing more things that we didn't know about a week ago that are just chilling so we can sum up here is that if you think you have an idea for a podcast we still encourage you here at the beginning of 2021 to do it and if you don't love the first one maybe you'll like the second one better and that you have episode after episode after episode to do it. It seems that collaboration often helps. At least it does for me. Um, You know, the collaboration with both of you is invaluable. Um, Eric, I mean, working with Eric, it's a very different thing than if I'd been left to my own devices. And I think it is, it is probably, I'm not even probably, it is a better thing. Jennifer, it got even better when, when you became a a full-time collaborator, right? For all intents and purposes. And, and in each time, it, it, it changes a little bit and, and it, it rounds off some sensibilities and introduces some new sensibilities. And I think that that's been part of, you know, I mean, there there are those rare kind of solo podcasts. I mean, WTF is almost one in a way in which at least part of it is about Mark Marin, but he brings in a guest. Hardcore History is sort of one of those uh, solo, like it's one guy, you know, telling long form stories of, of his own. Uh, delineations of of American or global history, world history, right? Yeah, professor podcast. Yeah, essentially. But there there are very few of those, right? We tend to see that chemistry often is more important or collaboration and, 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 uh, you know, it's somehow, you know, it's not inherent to, to putting audio files on the internet, but somehow, nevertheless, it turned out to be kind of the dominant form because even you think, you know, there's Conan O'Brien needs a friend, uh, but it's it's Conan O'Brien, but he always has his producer and his assistant, right? So essentially, you know, he may be leading the, the, the proceedings, but he has these folks to riff off of and to bounce off of who also contribute. Um, it, it is more of a collaborative in that way than maybe, um, you know, the, the typical talk show, even though he has, has had sort of a, has always had his sidekick, uh, Andy Richter, for much of the years. It's still, I think, a different sort of collaborative um, behind the podcast microphones, whether you're all in the same room when it's even more fun or whether you're, you're distributed. I mean, it's great how podcasting, like I don't know of any podcasting podcast that said COVID stopped their production. Like everyone was pretty much ready 
to just say, okay, well, we'll just uh, we'll get you a microphone. I'll talk into my phone. We'll do whatever we need to do. And and I mean, it, it is because a lot of the technologies, you know, whether it's Zoom or other sorts of web conferencing, already worked and were good enough to for everyone to hang off of. But it's amazing that that is the it it it, it and in some ways maybe is is caused more podcasts to happen. Uh, well, and and a lot of people pointed out it's way easier to get guests. You know, especially well, at the yeah. beginning when it's changing. You know, yeah. peop- it's changing. People- <laughs> at the beginning when people were largely at home and yeah. you know, people were actually looking for creative projects to do it. I, you know, at Radio Survivor, we didn't miss. We we kept doing episodes right when the pandemic started, and we had plenty of fodder and plenty of guests. And you would think that would be the time when maybe you would have to take a break and. We were kind of full speed at that point. No, I the just other miss seeing amazing. Eric in person. And I, yeah. of course, I miss the fact Gosh. that, you know, Jennifer, I, I usually see you at least once a year, um, um, you know, and, other, and now it's been a while. The other thing about this well, yeah, year that's I, been remarkable. I haven't been in a radio station in a long time, which is yeah. really sad. The other thing that's been remarkable, I think, you know, in the five-year span of doing Radio Survivor is just the, um, the amount of guests who are prepared to have um, – a, a, a broad, you know, well, a broadcast quality is a, in scare quotes. Podcast the, quality, pod, podcast <laughs> quality microphones hooked yeah. up to the internet to and to allow a recording quality that's um, you know head and shoulders above what was available in the early aughts. Uh, even for radio, even for community radio, it's incredible how many people we talk to now um, can talk into, into their own microphone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The people who aren't radio producers who now own their own microphone and own a piece of equipment to record their voice and then also have the needed technology to broadcast this uh, podcast quality uh, audio fidelity well, over, s- over the internet. It's and all so many amazing. people have had to up their game. They might be yeah. teaching online classes. And, you know, now, thanks to you, Eric, I feel like I'm constantly giving tips. My husband works in the communication industry, so he has clients who get invited onto podcasts and radio shows. So I'm always like, okay, well, they, you know, they have to wear headphones. And, you know, I give like the whole long list of things. Yeah. Uh, and, and Eric and I uh, owe each other and owe you all a bonus episode in which we get deep into that nerdy stuff. And, yeah, and that is the plan. Where we marvel at, at the new devices and toys that are available um and uh and provide some concrete advice probably not necessarily to the to specific products but to just generally uh classes of things that uh we think uh, given what's now possible i've i've certainly i've stepped up my game i've got this i bought a brand new mixer uh the towards the beginning of the pandemic that allows me to do a bit more on my end and then more easily uh i should i should add um and that we have it i haven't even fully exploited uh, yeah, so we have that nerdy podcast, Eric. We need to we need to sit down and record I'm, it. Well, and I I'm, think Paul was I'm promising there. perhaps a video too, maybe. Oh yeah, that's right. I was. Let's just get <laughs> to the inauguration, shall we? Yes. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, thank you everyone for listening. This has been uh, a nice for us to catch up. We hope it was of some value to you as well. Of course, you can email us if you want to. Um, if you want to join us, you know, you just listen to three friends have a long conversation, perhaps during those. During those uh, minutes that you spent with us, you had an idea in your head that you wished you could share with us, and we would love to hear it. Our email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. If you haven't already subscribed, 
I don't know who you could possibly be if, if you're listening to us, but you haven't subscribed. But please do. Uh, when you subscribe, it's, uh, it makes it easier for you to hear every episode. And, and when we have guests and uh, uh, when we talk about the, the ongoing, uh, you know, the, I'm thinking right now just about how uh, our conversation today connected to four different really good episodes during the year that we recorded um, and that I hope our listeners had the opportunity to hear. And if you subscribe to the podcast, you will hear those. Or you can even still uh, go back in our timeline in your podcast uh, app and find our old episodes about Voices of America or uh, discussing uh, Section 230 with Christopher Terry, which I want to say, just because it's time dated doesn't mean it's still not uh, an important bit of information to put into your brain to learn about the issues. Uh, you know, the, the sort of the, the news shifted the ground underneath our feet, but I still, I still think Christopher, um, you know, taught us a lot about those topics. So subscribe to the podcast. And um, what else do we tell folks? Oh, this is a reader and listener supported project. Uh, Paul was talking today about his grandpa and the radios that his grandpa gave him. And that reminded me of our zine that we put out because, Paul, you told that story a little bit in the zine. When I got to, you know, put it together, I thought about that. I really enjoyed that. Uh, that and there's nothing more zine-like than to than in, in like a little paragraph of text to tell a story about, about something that's important to you. Um, we gave a zine out to our Patreon supporters. Um, was that 10 years ago? I think that was... Uh, two summers ago i believe it was 2019 it feels like well you'll i hope listeners will understand why i've lost a little bit of contact with with the calendar time yeah it was 2019 and it feels like last year uh we'll do we'll do that sort of thing again so check us out online at our our patreon uh campaign um you can find out more at radiosurvivor.com slash support